I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It was a terrible thing to think of five years' work wasted with nothing to show for it. The choice was really, do you just go back and try and reanimate its corpse or do you just bury it and start something new? and welcome to the second season of Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection and how people get through it. I'm Francesca Steele, a writer and journalist based in London. And if you listen to the first season, you'll know that I launched Write Off after my own first novel failed to sell on submission to publishers. It remains a subject very close to my heart and I'm so excited to be back with a bunch of really brilliant authors who've all been through their own version of rejection. If you're new to this, welcome. I hope you enjoy it. And if you've listened before, thank you and a warm welcome back. There's some nice symmetry in this episode. Our first guest this season is Claire Chambers, whose rejection story was mentioned to me by Meg Mason, the final episode in the last series. Claire has written nine published novels, her first when she was just 26, and her latest Small Pleasures, a wonderful book that was long listed for the Women's Prize last year. But before Small Pleasures, there was a failed novel that nearly caused Claire to give up on writing altogether. It took her five years to write, and then no one wanted to buy it. We talked about her feeling her career was over, aged 50, working as an editor herself for the legendary publisher Diana Athill, how she switched from being a pantser to being a committed plotter, and being given permission not to be funny. Before we get going, I just want to say something about Write-Off's sponsor this season – Dealing with rejection is just one part of a writer's life. Jericho Writers are with you for every word. They are all about embracing the entire journey, rejections and all, and are committed to helping you hit your writing goals whatever stage you're at. Their inspiring courses, editorial services and events have launched writing careers and members benefit from heaps of additional content such as video courses, masterclasses and weekly live online events, many of which I've enjoyed myself. By becoming a Jericho Writers member, you can get insight into the world of agents and publishers, power through your plot problems, level up your prose style, and polish your submission before it lands in an agent's inbox. 
Plus, you'll be learning alongside a worldwide community of writers who will keep you motivated and on track, even when a rejection rolls in. Listeners of the podcast can get an exclusive 15% discount on membership by going to jerichowriters.com forward slash join dash us and entering the code write dash off. I will put that in the show notes. So let's listen to Claire. I started writing it when I left university. My husband got a teaching exchange in New Zealand and I went with him, but I didn't have a work permit. So I had a whole year where I wasn't allowed to work. And I thought, really, if I can't get a book written in a whole year when I've got nothing else to do and I don't know anyone and I haven't got any social distractions because I've got no friends here, then I'm definitely not a writer. So I have got to come back with a novel. So I I sort of just, you know, settled down to it and, and wrote some every day. And then I finished it in about, eight months which is probably the the fastest I've ever written a book and then the the school where he taught lent me a computer and and I used to go in and just type it up so by the end of the year I had got that novel done and you know I felt I had something to show for my year apart from all the fun I had obviously Um, (laughs) so that that was how I started it which is obviously a much easier way than most people have have to write their first novel they don't usually have a year of free time they're usually doing it you know in the morning or late at night or you know between jobs or whatever so I was pretty lucky to have that year and and that was how I started and had you been collecting plots and characters and bits from your time at university so that when you went to write it it was sort of ready to go do you think that's why it was quite fast yeah I think I'd been building up building up a frustration at not being able to write because when you're at university it's just constantly writing essays and reading for your essays there's no there's no time to do you know for for me there was no time to do any creative writing at all and I I had this sort of you know rage of of longing to write building up in me and so that that was that was good I I don't know how much um plotting I'd done before I think it was pretty pretty much of a skeleton I was I was very much more into winging it in my youth than I would be now um so but it was just the enthusiasm that powered me through (laughs) how great and then am I right in thinking that was actually published in 1992 by um the very famous editor Diana Athill when you were working for her at the publisher Andre Deutsch is that right yeah I got I got a job at Andre Deutsch just by the the time on a method of just writing letters to every publisher in London I mean this was writing letters by hand because I didn't have a computer in those days and just saying please please can I come and work for you in any capacity and it so happened that that the secretary of Tom Rosenthal the sort of chairman of Deutsch had had gone off sick that week that my letter arrived and so someone rang me up and said can you type and I sort of lied and said yes (laughs) <laughs> and um so I, I came in and did did his typing for a week and because I could spell he he really liked me <laughs> and I was just just taken on full time as a, a sort of cog in the editorial department on the basis that I could spell that was how I got in I mean I had, I had no connections in publishing at all or or anywhere useful I mean I, re- I really didn't it was just luck 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 is is the thing that that you need in publishing well, yes, but I suppose I suppose luck that you also made yourself by writing those letters. And and what was it like working for Diana Hill? And I mean, because in her memoir set, she comes across across as brilliant but quite brusque. And Andre Deutsch was sort of on its last legs then, wasn't it? It, it, sort it was of sold was, yeah. not long after. I think. Not long after. I worked there for five years before I got made redundant in the last tranche of people who were laid off when it became a, an absolute skeleton. But I, I, I couldn't really say in all honesty I was working for Diana because she was herself an employee of 
Tom Rosenthal, who had bought Deutsch from Andre. So she was just an editor, you know, there. And I wasn't really working for her. I was the secretary of another editor, Esther Whitby, who's been my mentor the last sort of 30 years. But obviously, it was a very collegiate setup. And if a book came in, everyone would read it, Esther, Diana, and the other editors. And if everybody liked it, then we'd publish it. You know, we, we didn't have this kind of let's let's work out how many we're going to sell and let's work out how much we can make. It, it wasn't driven by accounts at all, which is obviously why the company eventually failed. Um, but it was very driven by artistic taste. Um, so I, I didn't realise when I started that Diana Attil was who she was. I mean, I, I knew nothing. I was absolutely ignorant. I just left university and knew nothing. Um, so I, I saw this, you know, elderly lady who looked to me elderly. She must have been about 75 then you know, walking around the office quite quite in a sort of stately fashion. And I thought, who is that poor old woman? Why are they making her still work at that age? You know, and, and then I heard her say to somebody, oh, yes, I'm going I'm going back to Norfolk at the weekend to look after mother. And I thought, good grief, her mother's still alive. And she's looking after her mother. This is insane. <laughs> and I, I didn't realise that she still had, you know, sort of 20 years of, of, um, of work still ahead of her at the age of 75. She was in, there was no stopping her. Um, yeah, but I soon I soon got to know her reputation, and uh, she was she was absolutely delightful, really really nice, encouraging, thoughtful, and very sharp, just great. Mm. What an experience for your first job! How did it feel having your first book published by um, the publisher that you yourself were working for? What was that process like, and and did it feel everything you expected it to feel like? Uh, it was it was really interesting. In one sense, I knew. I had very low expectations because I'd seen other really good books come in and get published and go nowhere and, you know, get respectful reviews and, but just sink without trace. So I had, I had no illusions about what, what this meant for me. I knew this wasn't going to mean that I could give up work and sort of retire and, and live in my shed writing. I'd, um, I'd seen too much of, of, of the way it went, but it was really, it was really nice to be edited by the, the person, Ed, Esther, who, I worked for as a, as a secretary and to see her, her the work she did on my book to make it better and then see how the copy editor was so so punctilious and so careful and had such an incredible memory for detail and see how that that worked was really really helped when I became an editor myself you know in in course of time and then they sent me down to South Wales to see the book being printed and to come off the press and so I, I sort of saw the whole process and that was that was fascinating so yeah, I, I really enjoyed the process of being published, but it, it left me with no illusions that this was going to be a a life changing event in any other than my own head. I mean, in my own head, it was life changing because now I was a writer, and so obviously that was a big change. But from the point of view of success or money or fame, n- not at all, not a bit of it. <laughs> yes, I mean, I I want to talk later about your novel, The Editor's Wife, which I think is in in part of not really based on your experience in Andre Deutsch, but obviously draws from that a little bit because your character in that talks a lot about exactly what you're saying here, the idea that a first novel being published isn't necessarily life-changing in the way that maybe you assume it is. But do you think that's a good way to start with, I suppose, with maybe not low expectations, but like hyper-realistic expectations of the industry? Yes, uh, yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's you know, uh, you know, low expectations is um, my, my family's kind of watchword. This is, this is what has got us <laughs> through life. <laughs> Aim low <laughs> and okay. uh, you'll never be disappointed. Yeah, and I think also having, having a trajectory where it, it's gradually upwards rather than shooting up and then, then uh, you know, if I'd, if I'd been incredibly successful at the age of 24, I can't really imagine how 
my career would have gone anywhere other than rapidly downhill. So I think a, a slow and laborious climb up is better, really, than a stratospheric start and then future disappointment. Mm. But you can't choose. I mean, it's, it's out of your hands, really. You, all you can do is write write the best book you can. And, and once it's out of your hands, the industry will do what it does. And you, you're pretty powerless to change the course of, of events. Yes, relinquishing control is a, is a um, theme that comes up again and again in, in this podcast. Um, I'm going to skip ahead just a bit. Um, I want to chat about the books in between. But you've now published nine novels, including Small Pleasures, which we'll talk about in a bit, which is a wonderfully witty, gentle and insightful book that was long listed for the Women's Prize um, last year. But I know that before Small Pleasures, you had a very different writing experience with a novel you were working on for, I think, five years. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Um, Well, I started it. I've just written two young adult titles and I'd sort of come to the end of that road and realized that that YA fiction wasn't for me I'm far too slow and it it took me so long that I was increasingly getting too old to even remember my teenage years you know or even my children's teenage years I'm so slow so I realized that I'd I'd really exhausted everything I could do in YA terms in two books and I I wanted to get back to writing about the things I liked writing about which is you know, slow plots where where you can take your time, which obviously you can't in YA fiction. It's all about telling the story and telling it fast. I'd started a new a new novel about a young woman at university who's accused of cheating and how she she leaves university under a cloud and then has to sort of start her life again uh, back home and how she becomes entangled with with a sort of family of, of dubious sort of criminal leanings. And anyway, I I started writing this and I I, I felt it was going. In, in the same way that all my books have gone, you know, you, you have moments of doubt and you you sort of panic and you think, what, what's the point of this? What, what There's a huge so what hanging over this story. Why would anyone read on? But I've had that with all my books before. So I thought, no, it could be fine. And it was it, it took me quite a few years to, to write it because I had various other life events going on, which, which slowed things down. You know, the death of my father and moving my mother and, and that sort of thing. So there, there were various other things that, that slowed me down. But after about four years, I, I got this sort of finished what I thought was a finished book and I I sent it to my agent and he took an awfully long time to read it which didn't kind of fill me with hope Um, and then he came back with some sort of reservations so I went away and and worked on it again and then sent it back to him and he spent an awfully long time not reading my corrections and I could feel the the lack of enthusiasm emanating from him and um, he, he tried to send it to my previous publisher who published my other stuff and they turned it down and he he wasn't that hopeful about selling it anywhere else really so i was i was pretty devastated by this rejection i can see what what's wrong with the book since you know since i've shown it shown it to other people and they've said what what's wrong with it is you've got six subplots and no plot and i can oh. see that that was a, a major failing in a, in a novel um but every time i picked it up i'd read a paragraph and think no the writing's fine this is my this is my style it's great there's nothing wrong with it i like it but of course well-written paragraphs do not a novel make and that was yes. the problem um but it was it was a, um, a terrible kind of thing to to think of five years work wasted with nothing to show for it either financially or or emotionally or creatively or in any way it just was was sort of wasted um so the choice was really do you do you just go back and try and reanimate its corpse or do you just bury it and start something new and I even though I'm a very slow writer I thought I'd rather just try and start something new and spend another three years or whatever it takes 
with something new than to try and fix whatever's wrong with this. I mean, it just felt like a house of cards. It felt like I had to fix the bottom layer of a tower of cards and it was not going to be possible without the whole thing crashing down. So um, once I'd I'd just written it off, I, I felt kind of better I mean I had about a year of feeling terribly depressed <laughs> I mean really depressed I couldn't I couldn't write I couldn't even read I I just sort of I just did a bit of knitting and then I kind of got knitter's block <laughs> and uh, once I'd found something I was even worse at than writing which was knitting I stopped that as well and went back to writing but is it the first time you've ever had rejection and is that also the first time you've ever found yourself unable to write um it wasn't the first time I'd I'd had rejection because my first novel I'd sent to numerous agents and publishers before I got my job at Andre Deutsch and, and showed it to them and then they published it. So um, I knew that being turned down was just, you know, routine. But this this felt kind of worse, really, because I'd spent so many years doing it. And I was 50 and I just felt I hadn't written anything or had anything published for so long that really my career was just all but over. You know, I, I thought my, my track record of previous sales is poor. I'm not I'm not young or fashionable I'm not a debut if I ever get published again it'll be some kind of miracle um so I I that was that was what was sort of fueling my my depression really the fact that I thought I'd I'd blown it career-wise as a writer and um that my my backlist would would never resurface you know that it it had it had its few admirers but they certainly weren't enough to um you know keep me in uh, post-it notes or whatever so um yeah that that was that was the the kind of problem with my my mood um and it was the first time I'd really been blocked for for long yeah was it a great <clears throat> shock to you when your agent when you could sort of feel his lack of enthusiasm when he was taking a long time to get back to you did you start to feel differently about the novel or did you continue to think no no this is this is what I wanted it to be it was a sort of slow dawning that it it wasn't going to happen it was a bit like I mean it was a bit like kind of being ghosted in a relationship it's sort of a slow dawning that that they're not that into you (laughs) but it was a more he was not that into me in a literary way not in a personal way um and he he could see that that he wasn't going to be able to sell the book in its in its current form or in any other form and so I think he was finding it hard to hard to just come out and tell me that in so many words so you know, it just it just took up a lot of time. That whole process of not getting anywhere took took another year, really. Um, whereas a more brutal approach would have saved me time in the long run. I think. Mm. Is it? Do you norm? You said you're a slow writer, apart from your first book. What's the normal time scale? Three years. Yeah, about three years. Okay. Yeah, and um, so- it, that's that's been pretty constant. Whether or not I've had small children at home to look after and, and juggle, or whether I've had all the time in the world or whether I've been working you know it's always been about three years for a book when it took you four years did you feel that that was longer already could you feel that the the book that you were writing was more complex or not quite working in the same way as your usual ones yes yes I had I had a slight a slight feeling of unease that it was growing it was growing and getting sort of baggier but it wasn't it wasn't getting nearer to a conclusion so I did I did have a slight sense of unease but not enough to have made me stop at a at an earlier and more sensible stage and I think that was what that was what fueled my fear afterwards is that I hadn't I hadn't noticed that it wasn't working for so long you know I'd um, and I thought well if I can't tell how can I tell in the future whether what I'm doing is is okay how can I tell that I'm not this time equally deluded that what I'm writing is a novel um, and that I think that that sort of fear of 
of wasting time again was was what was blocking me. How does one tell? I, I think that's an interesting thing to maybe look back on now, now that you've written something else that has been the most successful thing that you've written. If you look back on that novel that didn't make it now, can you unpick some of the things that didn't work and, and use those now to work out how one might tell um, when something isn't working? Yes, I think I think I can. I mean, I think trying to trying to do the um, winging it approach to planning and the you know letting it grow organically is is not for me I, I know some writers do it and and they they enjoy that sort of Russian roulette sort of feeling of risk but um since I've I've tried a different approach which is plotting and planning to the nth degree before I start writing um I, I think that's that's definitely works for me better and it and it's less risky you know I think there's just too much risk in in the approach of just starting and seeing what grows I mean that I think maybe when you're younger you feel you've got a lot of time but when the older you get the fewer books you've got in you and you don't want to waste that energy on something that's not going to be right so now I'm I'm a plotter and a planner that's so interesting was small pleasures your first plotted book then well well the others were plotted to an extent I mean I knew roughly where I was going and I knew where I needed to get to but I'd always be so enthusiastic to start once I'd got the sort of very barest outline that I'd power into it without having sorted out the sort there was always a sort of Bermuda triangle in the middle that you've got to go through and um, that that would hold me up for quite some time but I always came through it and and fixed it and and ironed out the sort of plot wrinkles and so I thought that would happen every time and that 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 was a given that it, it would always be fine like that but for this book that didn't work it didn't really happen and the wrinkles just stayed there wrinkly so I knew that a different a different approach was needed and I had a new agent by then who said well you know just try try something different if don't don't keep doing the thing you you're always doing do something different and and she also gave me sort of permission not to be funny I mean I, I'd always felt I had to be funny when I was writing and that, that every page had to make you laugh and I was constantly trying looking for for sort of humor and everything I just felt I'd be shortchanging the reader if I didn't but that's not always the kind of book I like to read. I'm quite happy to read a book that has absolutely no laughs in it. You know, I quite like a really serious or a sad book. And she said, well, you know, you don't have to be funny. Just just tell the story. And and sort of being given permission not to be funny was a huge weight off my back. And I, I still managed to have the occasional humorous bit, I suppose, in Small Pleasures. But I, I felt it wasn't it wasn't this raison d'etre to be funny. I could just tell the story. And that, that was that was a really nice feeling because I've noticed other writers seem to get away with doing that as well, just telling their stories without um, it having any adverse effect on the quality of the book. Yeah, how wonderful. I mean, I think Small Pleasures is very funny, but it's lightly worn. Um, it's, not the, it's not the sort of primary atmospheric feeling mm. when you're reading it. Okay, so you, you had this sort of rejection from your agent over this five-year novel, and, um, and sorry, he showed it to your previous publisher and, and they said no, and you decided not to send it anywhere else. Um, and, and then what happened? You, you, you split from your agent and you spent a year blocked. Is that, is that right? Well, I, I just sort of suffered from a bit, of, a bit of depression for about a year, you know, also related to other kind of life events, not, not entirely to do with writing, but that certainly didn't help. Um, sorry. And, um, but, you know, n- nothing serious, just, just that kind of, you know, empty nest sort of thing I I was 50 my daughter had moved abroad and I hadn't seen her for 
a long time and there was no prospect of her coming back and I and you know various sort of pillars of my existence was I felt were slightly crumbling I still had my job and I had my husband and so that was two pillars but I feel two pillars isn't really quite enough to hold up a building so the, the other pillars of being a mother and and being a writer had gone and I just felt things were a little bit rocky the things I thought I was good at are, are either not really needed that much anymore or I'm not as good as I thought I was um so that that sort of was just a a sort of source of slight a slight sort of source of depression really um but I realized the only way to get out of it the only way I was going to get out of it was to write my way out of it and and it was going to be a long game it, there was no quick fix I was just going to have to sit down and write for another couple of years and try and just have one more go at, at writing and I parted with my agent, you know, amicably, just I just felt that, that he I needed somebody who hadn't sort of seen me as a failure or whatever, or, or someone who had fresh enthusiasm for me um, and could start me off again on a new on a new track. And so that was fine. And I, I you know, got a new agent who was immediately enthusiastic and and kind of trying to fix what was wrong and, and push me off in the right direction. And that was and that was really helpful. And as soon as I'd shown her my outline for my new book. Um, which is which is one I've been chewing over for, for years, um, but thinking it's not for me because it's not funny. It's not a romantic comedy. And I'd shown her the outline and she'd said, yes, it's great. Write it. And then I'd shown her the first few chapters. and she's, Yes, it's great. Finish it. That sort of gave me the, the confidence to keep going. And the writing of that then became fairly, I wouldn't say easy because it took a long time and it's it, it's work and it's kind of a bit of a craft when you don't feel like doing it but it wasn't I didn't have any huge boulders in across my path you know I felt that, that the path ahead was fairly smooth and I felt confident that she would she would be able to sell it somewhere so I felt it wouldn't be time wasted. So I'm just going to say for listeners who haven't read it that uh, Small Pleasures is a book about um, a reporter in 50s suburban London and her investigation into a woman who claims she's had a virgin birth. Um, but it's about so much more than that, too. It's about Jean, the reporter's um, life changing. She's approaching 40 and she's looking after her mother and she lives quite a small quiet life hence the appreciation for these small pleasures like her cigarettes and her one bar of chocolate a week and it's a it's a wonderful page actually where you describe this kind of litany of small pleasures and you know it's about the idea of whether that's satisfying enough a life and actually it's quite interesting that you wrote that in a period where your pillars were sort of coming down because in a way your character Jean the reporter she has almost too many pillars you know she's sort of ensconced in this very in this very stable life that needs destabilizing so I think that's interesting but I, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about you said that that idea had been knocking around for a while how long is a while and how did you then take this idea that had been knocking around know it was a good idea when you were you know questioning what good ideas even were and then plot it so meticulously that you know you were just sort of ready to go and and wrote it quite smoothly well I the idea came to me when I heard this piece on Women's Hour, and I think it was 2001, it was a, a report by Claudia Hammond. She was talking to Audrey Whiting, the, a journalist on Fleet Street, who'd broken this story about a woman um, in the 1950s who claimed to be a virgin mother. And it had been quite a, quite a sensation at the time, and it had doubled the paper's circulation. And it was, it was you know, quite a big deal if, if you were around in 1956 when the story came out. And it was just quite a, an interesting piece. And I thought that there was there was some sort of potential there for a novel based around this story, because obviously in the 1950s, there wasn't quite enough science around to really disprove or prove her story one way or the other. I mean, you couldn't you couldn't have that story set now because it would be 
instantly provable or disprovable within an afternoon. But because they didn't have, you know, genetic testing and that sort of thing, they just had blood tests and saliva tests and skin grafts and fairly mechanical tests. The outcomes were all somewhat ambiguous for this woman. So so the, the newspaper sort of ran with the idea that, yes, she was a virgin mother. But I just thought that that had so much potential for the idea of women's roles in the 1950s. But because it, I had never written anything that wasn't contemporary or comical, I felt this, this story wasn't, wasn't humorous. I just felt there was something maybe tragic at the bottom of this story. I didn't want it to be kind of a, a religious story about, about sort of um, angels and stuff. And, and well, I, I mean, angels do come into it, but I, I didn't, you know, I didn't want it to be a supernatural kind of story. So I felt there had to be some something quite sad at its heart. And I thought maybe I'm not that person to tell it. But when I when I sort of revisited the idea, I thought, yeah, you know, this is this is a good story. And I, I could I just got to find a way of telling it. And I decided that I wasn't it wasn't going to be the, the mother who was who was going to be my my heroine had to be the the journalist and then therefore the story had to really be about her life and how the virgin mother story impacts on her life rather than the other way around so once I've got my character and my setting I started to think I'd like to set it in suburbia because I want it to be a small story of of frustrated potential and limited lives and so it can't be set in in the big city it can't be about successful glamorous people it needs to be about small repressed lives so I thought I can I can set it in in Bromley where I live. And w- once I started researching the area, I came across this reference to the Lewisham rail crash, which happened on the line, the Charing Cross to Hayes line, which I commuted on every day for years without realising that it was the scene of this quite significant tragedy in which 90 or so people died. So once I've got my setting and my my sort of engine of the plot, then it was just a case of working out the best way to tell the story and 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 to have all those elements clicking in a way that, that worked as a plot and that everything linked together and there weren't any extraneous elements. I didn't want to have any digressions, which had been what was wrong with the book before. My agent said, you've got so many subplots, just 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 focus on the main story and develop that and don't keep going off at these, these side angles. So that was good advice and um, that was something that really helped in the, in the planning. How long did it take you to plan before you put pen to paper? Once I, I started thinking, right, I'm going, to, I'm going to plan this novel, it was probably about three months or so of, of just sitting and thinking every day how I'm going to tell the story. But I'd obviously been, been mulling over the story for many years before that, but actually of, of really of teasing out the characters and the situation and the setting and the, and the timescales, that, that was about three months' work. And what were some of the subplots that went when you started um, streamlining it all? goodness I can't remember I don't know if I even had any don't do that Um, thing that you did in the last book don't start having having side characters who aren't really anything to do with the main plot just keep focused on the on the story you're telling um so I didn't really I didn't really have any any side plots that I dropped later I just didn't I didn't even go down that route the thing is sometimes I think subplots and side characters who kind of appear work really well but I do find it a really interesting problem because I sometimes wonder from my own experience as well whether excessive subplotting is to do with a fear that you haven't fully explained yourself and that your plot isn't standing strongly enough and so you're sort of it's a kind of a distracting technique do you think that's right yeah I think I think there's something in that I think it it may well be a a distracting technique or or trying to add an extra sugar to the mix you know to make it sweeter 
I, I think my earlier books definitely had subplots and side plots, and they they're very different in quality. I think to small pleasures that they're, they're a different type of novel. I don't say they're any better or worse, but they're just different. So I don't think there's a right or a wrong way of of writing, or there's a, a right or a wrong type of structure. But I just thought. I, I can't keep doing the same thing because it hasn't really worked for me. I need to do something different. And if that also doesn't work, then I'll know that the problem is deeper. It's even deeper than that. <laughs> so thank that goodness it did very much yeah. work. <laughs> <laughs> so it took you, did you say two years to write Small Pleasures then yeah. after that? Yeah. And then, and then, um, and could you feel as you were writing it that this was something bigger, something better? Did it, did it feel that way to you in the process? Well, yes and no. I mean, I felt I felt I played all my aces. I thought I've I've used up all my aces here. I've used I've used my own local area. I've plundered local history. I've used these household hints, which I got from my parish magazine, which is such a great idea, great resource. I felt I couldn't have thrown any more at it, you know, than I did. But at the same time, I didn't feel, you know, have, I, I always felt confident in my previous books that that I was onto a winner. So I had no real grounds for thinking this this is this time it's going to be more successful so I just felt you know a mixed feeling of optimism but guarded guarded optimism what do you think enabled you to keep going given that you were sort of questioning your confidence was it the agent's enthusiasm or did you have something Mm, deeper it was the agent's enthusiasm and my husband's um support you know insistence that that I keep going and I I don't give up um you know he's been such a support of my writing since you know since I started and he he was really behind me and just said just you know get get back to the study get on with your work you know you know you can do it and so I felt I'd, I'd be letting him down if I quit and I just wanted to have one more shot and I, I I absolutely would have not written anymore if that hadn't done anything if that hadn't been published I wouldn't have had the resilience to think right I'm not giving up I mean I would have definitely given up at that point because I really I thought yeah I just think you can't there may be there may be good reasons for for quitting and trying something different there may be something else I'm better at that I'm not exploring so I would have I would have definitely stopped at that point what do you think that would have felt like giving up writing after really quite a long time of writing with with reasonable success it's not like you had no success before that I felt it, it had already happened I'd already given it up you know in that 10 years when I was writing the book that took five years and then failed and then I had the year of not writing and then I started again and it was a good 10 years between my last book being published and Small Pleasures being accepted. So I'd already sort of abandoned the identity of a writer. So it wouldn't have been a big step. It was it would have just been a continuation of not being a writer. I find the whole concept of an, uh, uh, the identity of a writer quite interesting because are you a writer if you're not writing? Are you a writer by virtue of writing? I mean, maybe maybe people write but don't need it as much as other people who write. It's an interesting concept, what it means to be a writer and what it feels like to give it up. Actually, I know when Meg when Meg Mason was on this podcast, she talked about the embarrassment of, of um, acknowledging yourself as a writer when you first start out, that it feels like a very silly, embarrassing thing to say to people. <laughs> Yeah, especially if you haven't published anything for a long time, you feel it's not it's not that dignified to say, you know, you're a writer. But luckily, I had another job, so I could always hide under that identity. Working in education, you feel at least that is a source of some pride. And so what were you doing at that point when you weren't writing? Sorry, you were teaching. No, I wasn't teaching. I was just working in a school as an administrator part time. You know, every morning I'd go in and do my admin and then I'd come home and write my book in the afternoon so I had this sort of split life which most writers do I mean it's quite rare to be able to afford to do no 
paid employment you know that is the, the minority experience for writers most people work as well in other jobs um, and that that worked pretty well for me because it gave me a social life and you know meeting people whereas just being at home writing and not succeeding is a really lonely business okay so then small pleasures was taken on and there was an auction <laughs> then- well you say auction I mean it was really more of a boot fair than an auction I mean <laughs> <you know. laughs> the, the numbers weren't massive you know there were three publishers who were interested and that was really nice because it gave me an element of choice but they weren't outbidding each other. They all offered the same fairly modest advance. And I just had to choose which publisher I preferred of the three. So okay. it, it was an auction of sorts, but I would say much more a boot fair than an auction. Okay. Then it was a what has been described as a word of mouth hit and then was long listed for the Women's Prize. So I don't, I don't think we can uh, say that it was anything other than a resounding success. How did that feel? What was that like for you, particularly coming off the back of that experience of the five-year manuscript before that? Well, it's, it's you know, been completely wonderful, you know, in every way, but it, it was a very gradual thing. It wasn't, um, it wasn't kind of an overnight success. It, it built gradually. And that, that word of mouth thing, um, I was always being told by my previous publishers back in the sort of 90s that my books, oh, it's great word of mouth book, great word of mouth book. But there was no such thing as word of mouth before social media so it was useless it just meant we've got no publicity budget for this book Um, whereas (laughs) now word of mouth can actually work if somebody with a huge um, platform raves about something then that's actually really helpful so um, yeah and and that that did kind of build gradually when when proofs came out and people started reading it and and sharing it and I think it was also a lot to do with the beautiful design of the book The, the jacket was lovely and it it looked very good on social media because it's very bold and I think that that obviously helped um and you know as I've said before there is just a huge amount of luck in publishing and sometimes you know luck had gone against me for for quite a few years decades even and suddenly luck was going with me and you know that felt really really good but I do acknowledge that you know it was luck I mean my I had a great agent and a great publisher and a great editor and all those things were not luck they were they were you know, because those people were so good at their jobs and they, you know, my publisher was so good and the, and the publicity woman was so energetic and creative. So I'm not sort of not to belittle their efforts, but I was I was lucky to have them is what I'm saying. Uh, you know, the luck was mine in finding those people who did that job for me. Um, and it just doesn't always work out that way. And um, I, I'm very aware that all the time there are just great books out there that don't don't have the luck this time and they don't all rise to the surface you always think oh brilliance will rise brilliance will rise talent will, will rise talent will out and it just doesn't always in publishing it, it sometimes doesn't and sometimes does and who knows which way the dice will roll for you but I do feel there's an awful lot of luck involved and I just I'm just so glad that this time I got it you know yes and actually, it's not your first experience of awards. I know that Learning to Swim, one of your early novels, won the Romantic Novel of the Year Award in 1999. How did this experience compare with that earlier experience? And also, how important do you think um, winning external praise of the kind of prize variety is to um, not, a, not a writer's career necessarily, but a writer's sense of self-worth and achievement? I think it does it does help you know it, it, in the sense that it helps it, it makes your publisher glad and it, it gives your publisher confidence in you so that which is a useful thing to have you know a confident publisher but 
you you have to just look around the outside world and realize that that the, the book world is so tiny and that nobody has ever heard of any of these prizes outside the very small circle of people who are interested in books and prizes and that is a very small circle and you know you, you sort of think that something is a is a global success and then you mention it to a neighbor and they've never heard of it and, and, and it's you know they've, they've never heard of something that you consider to be all over the media you know it's it's a book that's in the top it's been in the top 10 for six months and you you can't believe there's a person in the universe who hasn't read it and then your neighbor has never heard of the author or the work and you realize that you know it, it is quite a small pond um that you're floating around in and so you shouldn't take anything too seriously about this these kind of moments of success just have to keep it keep it a bit in perspective but you know the women's prize longesting was was really serious because that was a sort of suggestion that it was a literary book and that sort of helps your your reputation your likelihood of being re- reviewed in the future so so that was you know massively helpful and of course it's a great it's a great prize and a, a great sort of um, thing for women and totally behind it so I, I was I couldn't have been happier with that you know that was great and I think that, that they've chosen the right winner I think Piranesi was absolutely brilliant and you know wonderful book and the best book of the year so um, I was very happy to be kind of on that list. You talked earlier about you know the choice of reanimating the corpse of that um of that novel did it have a title by the way the novel that yes it had rather a pleasing title I think it was called reasons for leaving and I thought that was a really nice uh euphonious sort of title if that's the word. it is a nice title and yes so you talked about the idea of whether or not to reanimate reasons for leaving now that you're looking back on it with some time and perspective is there anything that you could and would salvage from that manuscript a character that wants to um, live again or a concept that you were interested in exploring maybe I mean there's there's one or two maybe one or two characters that I might you know, I don't know it's too painful really to go back to it's just sort of reawakens all these awful memories of misery yeah um, but I'm, I'm more likely to just plunder the occasional word or phrase that I've used um, you know where I thought I'd, I'd nailed some bit of description nicely I, um, I'm more likely to, to just do that rather than try and draw out a, a character and, and re, rewrite a book around them I think the other problem was that the, the heroine was was just too young and it was set in it was set in modern times but without really a full awareness of what it's like to be a modern woman and a young you know a young woman just leaving university and it, it didn't have enough about social media or, or the kind of or technology it was very much it was kind of set in the past but it wasn't you know it, it, um, there were sort of various things wrong with it like that which would be hard to fix I've just finished reading The Editor's Wife, um, which came out in 2008, I think. And um, I would very much recommend, in particular, The Editor's Wife. And it is um, from the point of view of a man, Christopher Flinders. And he dreams of being a novelist and he drops out of uni to write his magnum opus and then with varying degrees of success navigates um, 80s London publishing scene. And it is just filled with little gems and insights into that world, including self-doubt and rejection which is so interesting that you were kind of reflecting on that um, sort of in, I think, in the middle of your career. And so I just wanted to run some of those insights by you here and, and see what you make of them now with hindsight. I think even before it happens to you, rejection can be a preoccupation of writers because even if you haven't been externally rejected, you're always rejecting yourself and you sort of see it everywhere around you also. So, yeah, so the first one is when Christopher says that over two years, he wrote six opening chapters of six different novels. I mean, that sense of starting things and never finishing them, it, in, in lots of ways, it doesn't sound like they're things you're generally worried about, uh, apart from um, 
your five-year manuscript but where did that nervous energy of Christopher's come from when you were writing The Editor's Wife? I just I was just basing it on all the all the people I sort of met in publishing and you know the first the people who were first novelists you know we were taking on stuff from the slush pile it was never their first attempt what we were looking at it was you know it might be their 14th attempt or something you know that the, the history of, of struggle that was that was behind every every submission was just so painful to 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 learn about I just thought this I just want to put something of this in this book because it's it's true (laughs) and when you were an editor did you feel that sense of responsibility offering people crumbs of enthusiasm or not or do you feel that you know you become you have to sort of steel yourself against thinking too much about that well I was always in the position of doing books that we'd taken on you know I was editing books that we'd accepted so they'd already had they'd already had that sort of moment of affirmation and and acknowledgement and they'd got a contract and now my job was to make the book better so um, it wasn't so much about encouraging them on the book that was already written it was about trying to make it as good as possible and I sort of feel now with hindsight that I probably was a little bit heavy-handed in that department and I was perhaps a little bit <laughs> overconfident in my in my editing skills and my abilities to make <laughs> that book better and probably should have had a little bit of a lighter touch now that I've been edited myself I realize that you don't necessarily want somebody rewriting the book the way they'd have written it which is what I was I feel I might have been doing might have been guilty of yeah Diana Athill actually talks a lot about that instead that she worked on projects where she wasn't necessarily that fond of the voice but where she felt it was really important to retain that voice because that was Mm. the sort of the singularly most important thing about the book in a way um Mm. which is perhaps why she was an editor until she was 90 or something um Okay, so just one more thing from, um, and in fact, two more things from Christopher. I found this very funny when you were allowing yourself still to be um, excessively funny. (laughs) He talks about the unpublished writer's aversion to news of others' success. And he says, if a new book was well-reviewed, I was jealous. If it was slated, I was furious that inferior work was reaching the bookshops. And I actually found this so comforting because the reality is, is that you know, however much you want to be generous and happy for everyone's success, it is extremely hard when you yourself are struggling. What was your experience of that when you went through this dry spell? Um, well, when I went life? through the, the period of, of sort of depression and, and grief, uh, I found it almost impossible to go into a bookshop without feeling sick. I mean, I just felt piles of, of what I considered inferior material that, you know, would, would drive me to frenzies of despair. And then envy of, of the really good stuff that, I you know, you, you could never win. If you read a book that was good, you'd think, I'll never be as good as this. You know, I'll, I'll never write the Poisonwood Bible. Um, I might as well give up. Or if you read something that's that's rubbish, you think, God, this is so bad. How is this stuff getting published? It's so depressing. You throw it against the wall. So, you know, nothing pleases you. And and I, I mean, even, even as a published writer, nothing pleases you. If you go into a bookshop and there's a huge pile of your books, you think, oh, God, they're not selling. And if if you go in and there's only one copy, you think, oh, and you've got one, you know, so, you know, you could, you're never you're never satisfied. It's it's just um, a constant sort of daily micro humiliations. <laughs> What's the answer then, do you think, to be to being a happy writer who's not uh, destroyed by envy and fear? <laughs> just just really, really low expectations. I mean, that's that's what's kept me re- relatively sane, just really low expectations, just thinking, 
I'm happy to be published. It doesn't really matter what happens. It doesn't matter what happens with this book because in the long term, it'll all be all right. You have to be sort of long-term optimistic, but short-term pessimistic. You sort of think nothing's going to happen with this book, but eventually it'll be all right. These books are all good books. They're all in the bank there for one day. And so you just have to keep writing the best book you can so that, so that you're, pr- you're still proud of your backlist in 10 years' time. Um, that's all you know the only bit you have any control over is your writing so that's all you can do is just make your writing as good as possible so that you'll always be proud of the product thank you so much for listening to write off if you enjoyed it i'd be delighted if you fancied leaving a rating or review on your podcast app that really helps people find the podcast if they've not heard of it before or on twitter where you can find me at francesca Steele. Don't forget that I list my guests' books at my online bookshop, which is uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Francesca Steele. Details in the show notes. If you buy books there, you are helping me fund this podcast. So thank you and see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.